This is on page 940, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. And that's Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, page 940. Good to see you, Josh. Um, let me just tell you this up front, too. There are some passages of Scripture that are just automatically easy to understand. You read it, you get it. This isn't one of them. Okay? So you got to do some work here. If you, if you thought, oh, I'll come to church and just check out for an hour. No, you can't do that. you gotta, you got to work. you got to follow along. And uh, you'll be really blessed by, by what John has to teach us this morning. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? It's God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Luke. As Luke said, um, this text is, is like driving down a street with a lot of potholes. You can really destroy your car if, if you're not dodging them all the time. And, and this text is one of those where, like he said, you've, you've got to follow along. You've got to have your thinking cap on because it is, it's a difficult text. And let, us, let me try to help us get into this text with this. My, my sister and I, growing up, we fought all the time. And I mean all the time. I love my sister, but we just did not get along at all. I'm, I'm sure we drove our parents crazy. I, I know we did, because there was this time when we were at the store, and, and my dad and mom were there, and, and he goes, okay, guys, pick out a cereal. And we both picked the same one. And my dad was so shocked at that that he went home, pulled out a calendar, and wrote on that day, Jonathan and Emily agreed. <laughs> it, was so, it was crazy, but when it, when it comes to our text, it's the same thing, because every time a Jew and Paul got together, they fought. The one who wrote this letter is a guy named Paul. Paul did not grow up going to church. He was never in Sunday school. He never sang Jesus Loves Me as a kid. He never knew what a potluck was. So he's definitely not a Christian growing up at all. He grew up a very orthodox and religious Jew. He, he, he was such a committed Jew. I've heard it said that he had the equivalent of a PhD before he got into his 20s. At least one PhD, if not two, before he was 20 in the Old Testament. But he wasn't just a brainiac, he was a zealot. He was passionate, he was obsessed, he was like Jovert and Les Miserables. And the criminals that he was after were Jewish heretics called Christians. He hated them. He did whatever he could do to stop them. He, he blasphemed Jesus, taught others to do the same. He, was, he invaded homes, he imprisoned Christians, he persecuted them, and he even had some of them killed. That's the guy who wrote the book of Romans. Then... Jesus shows up, and instead of taking every molecule in his body and disassociating them and destroying them, he saved them. Bill Maher becomes Tim Tebow, and, he, and in that moment, God gives him a passion 
for the Jews. Gives them a passion to see them saved. And later in Romans 9, he writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why do you have that, Paul? I have that because I could wish that I were accursed, that, that I was lost and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Jews. What he's saying here is I would trade my salvation if it could help the Jews be saved. That is how much I love them. That's how much I care about them. So he would go to them constantly. You read the book of Acts? That's what he's always doing. He's going to the Jews, and every time he does, they go, this is the traitor. This is the one who converted. This is unforgivable. Every time he would talk to a Jew, they would fight. They hated him. They debated him. They arrested him. They beat him. Paul says there were, or Acts says that there were 40 Jews at one point who said, you know what? I'm not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. I'm going to commit myself, make a vow to kill him. And I'm not going to eat or drink until that happens. One time they stoned him, left him for dead. They, he says in, in 2 Corinthians 11 that five times the Jews gave him 39 lashes. Five times they were, he was whipped, that, almost 200 times. They just did not get along. He would give them the gospel. He would say, your Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. And they just didn't want to hear it. Now I tell you all this because the Bible didn't fall out of the sky in 1980. It's not something that we instantly connect with. It's something that has a context completely unlike ours. You know, there are no cars, there's no, no electricity, and there's no freedom of religion at all, which makes passages like this hard for us to understand. So just keep this in your mind that, that just over 2,000, just under 2,000 years ago, when Christianity was maybe 20 to 40 years old, there was a passionate and bitter conflict between Jews and the gospel. And in fact, if you, would, if you have any friends who are Jewish and you bring up the name of Jesus, you may see the same vitriol, the same anger at the things that you say. Romans 3, 1 through 8 is a little bit like, have you ever entered and you've seen two people arguing and, and you entered their argument halfway? And you're like, what's going on here? I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. That's, that's kind of like this text. It, it can be confusing unless we have this idea that Paul and the Jews are in conflict over the gospel. So why would Jews object so strongly to the gospel? Why would they have Paul arrested and, and even want him dead? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse 16, it says that the gospel... He says, chapter 116, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's a lot of conflict. People don't like me for it. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God is on display, saving sinners through the gospel. And that, that message went to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So now it's for everybody. Jew, non-Jew, everybody gets in on the gospel. And the reason I'm not ashamed of it, verse 17, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That doesn't mean that the gospel message says, God is righteous, you're in trouble. What that means is that the gospel says there is a righteousness from God, that God will give you his righteousness, his perfection, and that happens by faith. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous, the, those who are right with God, shall live, they'll be saved by faith. Well, from there, Paul's argument goes like this, starting in verse 18. Every single non-Jew needs righteousness. They're under God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 1. Every single moral person, every religious person, they're under God's wrath. 
And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, his argument goes like this. Every single Jewish person is under God's wrath and in need of, in need of righteousness. That God judges everyone by the same standard, his perfection. And every one of us is lost by that standard. None of us meets that standard at all. So we need righteousness. That's, that's Paul's goal from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. He has one goal in mind to bring every single person to the realization that they are lost and in trouble and, and they need Jesus. They need righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And that Jews are no better than Gentiles. Well, for a Jewish person, they're going to hear that. And they're going to be ticked. Who do you think you are, Paul? We are better than the Gentiles. We are better than those who aren't Jews. We have the law. We have God's promises. We have circumcision, they would say. This is the sign that we are God's people. How could you say that we're no better? We have all these blessings. And Paul's response, look at chapter 2, verse 27. 2.27, we saw last week, he says, He was physically uncircumcised. But keeps the law. So the non-Jew who keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. He says this is not about having the law or having God's word or having circumcision. This is about breaking the law. Have you done that? Then you're no different than a Gentile who's done the same thing. And in fact, those who keep the law, those Gentiles who trust Jesus, they're going to condemn you. Well, the Jew would be like, there's no way a Gentile is going to condemn us. How dare you say that, Paul? Verse 28, no Jew... No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. The, the circumcision that matters is not what happens to the body, it's what happens in the heart. Well, the Jew would say, no, you're wrong, Paul. The reason that we're going to heaven is because we're God's people. We're God's special possession. We're his chosen people. And because we're his chosen people, there is no way anything you're saying is true. They're not going to stand for this. That's going to make them angry. They would slam their fist on the table. They would yell. They would debate. And he knows the gospel. He knows this truth would cause them to do that. So what he does here is he inserts into the text this imaginary Jewish debater. As he continues this argument from chapter 1, verse 18 into chapter 3, he imagines a Jewish person going, no, 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 you're wrong. I've, I've got something that I need to say. I'm sick of your blasphemy. Here's the truth. And so he, he puts this guy into the text, and those questions that Luke read become objections. They're objections to everything Paul is saying. This imaginary debater. You've, you've got to imagine Paul face to face, face with, with a Jewish debater, a Pharisee maybe, like one that Jesus interacted with. You remember that in the Gospels? Some of you, like, like Jesus and these Pharisees, they always fought with each other. Well, imagine one of those in the audience when this letter is being read to the church in Rome going, no, 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 wait a minute. I, I've got an objection. Objection, Your Honor. They've heard everything about their need for righteousness. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. This Jewish person protests. This Jewish debater protests. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Well, what's the value? If God gave us all these blessings. You're saying they don't mean anything. And you would expect Paul to say, yeah, you're right. You're getting it. It doesn't mean anything. But he doesn't say that. He points to one very real Advantage. Look at chapter, look at verse 2. 
He says, what's the advantage? What's the value? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What Paul does is he, he, he says, everything I'm saying doesn't discount this one fact, that the Jews have the word of God. They've been entrusted with it. They've been gifted with it. They've been made guardians of his word. That word oracles is a significant word. That, that word conveys the idea that what the Jews had in their Bible and what you have in yours is the speech of God. It's the actual words of God, God communicating that the words on the page originated, had their source in God. And he says, that's a privilege. That's a blessing. That is something no other people on the planet had. That, that when God, the God of the universe, when he created all things, when he spoke, he spoke to you. He spoke to your prophets, to your people. And he said, here's who I am, and, and here's what I'm about. Think about it. They, they, they had this privilege. They alone had this truth. They alone had Genesis. So they knew how the universe started. They knew how everything started. They knew where all the people came from, all the plants, all the animals. From that book, they also knew that there was this special covenant, these promises made to one of their descendants or one of their forefathers, Abraham, who said, through you, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your descendants, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. So they had this very special relationship with God, and it told them that. They have Exodus and Leviticus, they have this covenant with Moses, which tells them, here's how sin-dominated people can interact with and not be killed by a holy God. So they alone could interact with God, nobody else on the planet could. They had the privilege of the book of Samuel. This book says that there's a promise to David and that one of David's descendants would, would become king. And he wouldn't just rule over this small piece of land in, in Israel. He would actually rule over the whole world. A Jew? One of us? Ruling over the whole world? Amazing. And then they have the prophets. So they don't just know, they don't just know how the world will begin. They know how it will end. They know that God will set up his kingdom, that he will judge all sin, he will solve the problem of evil, and he will reign forever. They alone, no one else had this immense privilege of being entrusted with the speech of God. God gave them this message to take care of. What a blessing. And we have the same privilege too, right? God didn't stop talking in the Old Testament. He sent his son and he spoke through him. The early Christian leaders, he spoke through them. And when those, those letters, those books were put together, it created the New Testament. God is speaking in this book that you and I have the privilege of holding in our laps. We too have the oracles of God, but that's a, and that's a huge privilege. But point number one, don't confuse enjoying God's privileges with being saved. If you're taking notes, point number one in this passage is, is don't confuse enjoying God's privileges with being saved. This is a major confusion for a lot of people who go to church, especially those who grew up going to church. Like the Jew, they think, well, I have a Bible. I may even have the Bible me- I, parts of the Bible memorized. I, I may know the big picture of the Bible, and they think, well, that's enough to be saved. They might think that like the Jew, I, I, I'm around the people of God. I enjoy the blessings of being in, in this community of people. And I've been there my whole life and I've seen these blessings and it's great. I go to church, I must be saved. You look at other privileges, maybe like I went through this ceremony like baptism or confirmation or, or I, I prayed this prayer, I walked this aisle, I experienced some of the blessing of being around these, these privileges that God gives. And so I did that, I, 
I must be saved. But according to Paul in Romans, what do you need to be saved from the wrath of God? You need righteousness. You need perfection. So this confusion is particularly tragic for kids who, like me, grew up going to church. I mean, what a privilege, what a blessing, way better than, 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 than not growing up in church. But, sadly, many don't see this blessing at all. They become, convinced that, they become convinced that growing up around church was actually not a good thing, it was a bad thing. They actually should have lived this horrible life and then at some point get saved and then learn all this stuff and then it would mean more to them. So it doesn't, in their mind, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. And I, I know this because I, I'm a high school Bible teacher. I interact with Christian students all the time. And I ask them, how do you know you're saved? And they say stuff like, well, I believe in God. I believe uh, Jesus died and rose again. I, I know the Bible. I grew up going to church. I was baptized, and that's how I know I'm, that's how I know I'm saved. All of those things are great privileges. But no one is saved unless he or she has righteousness. And there's only one way to get that righteousness, through faith in Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It's not trust in our knowledge of these things. It's not trust in what church you grew up in. It's not trust in a ceremony. It's not trust in yourself or your good works. It's trust in Jesus that saves. Because in that moment, when you trust in Jesus, you give him your sin-filled life. God treats Jesus as, as if he lived your life and punishes him for your sins. But in that moment, there's an exchange. He gets your life, but you get his. And his life was perfect. His life was righteous. And in that moment, you're saved. Now, there's a difference between being in a room at a fancy dinner and standing next to the table serving the meal and sitting at the table eating the meal. The servers, they're around the privileges of a fancy restaurant. They see the food. They don't eat the meal. The patrons are around the privileges and they eat the meal. The Jews had the privileges, but when the meal of the gospel came to them, they said, no, thank you, and don't ever say that to me again. And some of you here, I suspect, are the same way. Confusing having the privileges, enjoying the privileges with being saved, and they're not the same thing. And as an aside, if, if having God's word is a privilege, and it is, if having his truth in your lap is this blessing, is this gift, then I use that word enjoy on purpose. Because it's, it's the same way that you enjoy a piece of chocolate cake, for instance. You don't enjoy chocolate cake by speaking highly about the chef. You don't enjoy it by admiring the cake. Oh, it's such a pretty cake. Collecting different kinds of cake and putting them in your refrigerator. Hanging out with others who enjoy chocolate cake but actually never eating it. How do you enjoy chocolate cake? You eat it. How do you enjoy the privilege of having a Bible? You read it. You study it. You learn it. You memorize it. You talk about it with others. You, you do what it says. So for you, that might be going from not reading the Bible at all to reading one chapter a day. That might be going from reading 10 minutes a day to 20 minutes a day. Did you know the average reader, if you read the Bible 20 minutes a day, you'll read the Bible in a year? You could do that. That's easy. It, could, it might go from sporadic reading to daily reading, whatever that is, enjoy it more. Enjoy this privilege. How do you enjoy the privilege of being in a church, being around God's people? Well, one, by being here, interacting with people, 
getting to know them, teach, maybe helping them learn the Bible or having others help you learn the Bible. Maybe it's, it's loving them and serving them, but however that is, enjoy this privilege. Don't, don't, don't sit with, with your, your arms distance from those privileges. Enjoy them. Often, my, myself included, we enjoy so many lesser things. We enjoy so many things when this, this lesser things, when this great privilege of, of the word and God's people go neglected. Well, look back at the text, verse 3. For the Jew who had the Old Testament, this Old Testament is full of God's promises that God made to bless them and save them from their enemies. He is their, they're going to be his special people forever. Paul knows these promises, and this debater knows these promises. So he takes what Paul gives him in verse 2 about you have the oracles of God, you have this book that's full of God's promises, and he responds in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? What if some were unfaithful, Paul, like you're saying? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Picture him in Paul's face saying, Paul, how can God be faithful to the promises he made us in the Old Testament if our disobedience to the law and our rejection of our Messiah is what you're saying? If you're right, then when God judges us for our faithlessness, as it says there, if we're unfaithful, when God judges us for that, our sin will have actually canceled out God's faithfulness. If my sin causes God to remove his promises from me, then my sin is bigger than God. Then, then my sin is more powerful than God. Then my sin has more weight than God's faithfulness. And Paul, that's just ridiculous. You don't really believe that, do you? Does that make sense? Here's the objection. If God, if God made all these promises to us that he's going to bless us and save us, and yet my sin cancels out those promises, God's not powerful. There's some contradiction between God and your gospel, Paul. There's a problem here. Well, has God's loyalty to Israel been in vain? Did their rejection of Christ result in God just washing his hands with them and saying, I'm done with them and I'm moving on to something else, like the church? Should we abolish his covenants with, with the Jews? Should we, should we get rid of that? He's going to answer that question in a lot more detail in chapters 9 and 11. But for now, his response is simple. Look at verse 4. His response to that is, by no means. I had a teacher in, in, in college who translated those two words in Greek. You stupid, asinine individual. That's, that's impossible. That's, there's no way that could happen. Not in a million years would God ever break his promises to the Jews. Let God be true, he says. And everyone, if, though everyone were a liar. In other words, even if every one of them is unfaithful, if every one of them says one thing and does another, if every single one of them sins doesn't matter. God's going to be faithful to his promises anyways. His covenants are intact. The, this Jewish understanding that they will receive his promises regardless of whether or not they're faithful to him is a lie. Jews are faithful to God, Paul will say, by faith in the gospel. Jesus was faithful. He was righteous. He did everything right. And a person doesn't get in on those promises by trusting in themselves and their goodness. They get on those promises by trusting in Christ. So yes, God will remain faithful and the Jews will be punished for their sin, he's saying. Hmm. So God will be faithful 
Some Jews will receive the promised blessings while others will be condemned for their unfaithfulness. And when that happens, look at verse 4 again. When that happens, Paul says, as it is written, just to prove my argument, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. And Paul's argument goes like this. Those, those pronouns in there, you and your, those should be capitalized. Because what Paul's not saying is that, you know, someday, Jew, you're going, everything you're saying is going to be worked out. What he's saying here is that in the moment when God's righteousness is on display, when people see, like, he just judged and it's glorious and it's right, then he will prevail. His words, the things that he said, will be seen as right and true and good. And that every single person, every Bill Maher, everyone who has mocked Christ will say, I should have shut my mouth because he just prevailed. He just won the day. He wins. He quotes David. This is from Psalm 51. And if you remember Psalm 51, maybe you remember that this is an expression of, of David's repentance after he has sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, and had her, her husband murdered to cover his adultery. And David says, you're right in your judgment of me. You're right when you judge me. You're right when you punish me for my sins. Paul quotes David to show that all of God's accusers will be silenced. That God will be vindicated on judgment day. His righteousness will be upheld. And anyone who ever mocked him, opposed him, silenced. And on that day, we will stand in awe of God. Not just us, every human being who ever lived will see this moment, will be there in that day, and they will go, it will blow their mind at how perfect, how good, how right God is. And it will stun them just how awesome he is. And you might be saying to yourself, what in the world does that have to do with me? And I would say it has a lot to do with you, especially if you're a non-Christian, especially if you interact with non-Christians, or if you have an inner lawyer that tries to get you to doubt Christianity and think, this is just a bunch of nonsense. What the Jews did here is a common tactic of unbelief. It's using one truth in the Bible to try to cancel out another. It's trying to say, well, God will judge sin and God is faithful. Those two can't, those two can't coincide. And so point number two from our text, it's, it's obvious that, that you and I, we, we, we should not or don't cancel out God's justice with God's love. Don't cancel out God's justice with God's love. This is a huge, huge um, rejection in our day. It goes something like this. God is a God of love, and because he's a God of love, he would never judge anybody. And he'd especially never send anybody to a place like hell. I cannot, I, I will not believe in a God like that. This is Oprah theology. I remember, I remember seeing this clip on YouTube of, of her talking to a, a person who called in on Skype, and you see the video on Skype, and this person asked her about her Christian faith, and, and how do you, how do you, how do you, um, reconcile the, the, the stuff that you're saying about the New Age and the New Age theology with, with, with your Christian faith. And, 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 and Oprah's response was, when I heard that God was jealous, I said, you know, this is not true because God is love. She takes out her God is love missile and just unloads on any thought from the Bible that might contradict that. And she's no different than what most of us do, right? We want a God we like. 
We want a user-friendly God. We got a, like a God that we can put in our pockets, a God that is never going to tell us to do anything, but just sits there like a doting grandfather with a huge smile on his face and just says, I love you, I love you, I love you. I saw this a lot last year in one of my classes at, at the school that I teach at. The this, this student just argued with me every single day. He could not handle a God whose choices were supreme. He, couldn't, he just hated the idea that God could tell him what to do. He just refused to entertain the idea of punishment for sin because his God let people do whatever they want. He said, like, like God wants to make me happy. Why does he want to make me happy? Because he loves me. That's what you want for your kids, right? You want your kids to be happy. Why do you want that? Because you love them. And he said, that's the same with God. So because God is love and because God loves me, he wants me to be happy. So whatever makes me happy okay with God. Now, he is not indicative of every kid at my school, but this is a common idea. God's love trumps every other, all of his other attributes, that, that, that it is above all the others, and my response is God's love does not trump all his other attributes, that it's one characteristic of dozens, that God is not a one-trick pony. He's this multifaceted diamond that the more you get to know him through his word, the more you see just how marvelous he is, that, that he's good and he's righteous, that he's all-knowing and he's holy. He's, he's kind and there's no sin. He's righteous and merciful. He's all-powerful. He has no needs. He loves, but yet at the same time, he's high and lifted up, and yet he's lowly, and he comes, and he sympathizes with those who are weak. The list goes on and on, and I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that I like. My preferences don't mean anything. I mean, I preferred, I wanted the Spurs to win the championship the other day, but my preference means nothing with reality, right? I want, I want the God that is. I want the biblical God. I want... God's not a piece of Play-Doh that you can mold and shape into whatever you want. God is, and what we need to do is shape our Play-Doh-like minds into a form that matches how he is, how he reveals himself in the word. God is, in other words, God is just, he punishes sin, and he is loving. And that's not a contradiction any more than me being a son and a father is a contradiction. Again, God is, is complex. He's, he, there, there are many facets to him. And when God's love is seen by those who believe, when you experience God's love in this life and in the next, you will stand in stunned amazement. You will sit there, you'll just be shocked, and you will say, you are glorious. And you will do the same exact thing when he expresses his justice, and he punishes sin, and he solves the problem of evil, and he silences all who would dare to judge him, you and I, every human being, will stand there and go, there is none like you. You are incredible. Now, this Jewish objector, he hears what Paul is saying, and he's like, now I've got you. Now you're in trouble. Because you have just said something that is such a contradiction that I'm going to destroy everything that you've said. Look at verse 5. This debater responds in verse 5. But, hey Paul, did you think about this? If our unrighteousness, if my sin serves to show the righteousness of God, if my sin actually makes God look good, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
the Jew thinks that he's got Paul, in other words. He's saying this, at the end of the day, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then sin actually ends up being a good thing. Because the more we sin, the more glorious God is. And if sin makes God look good, it, if it magnifies his righteousness, then how can it be good for him to punish sinners? When they sin, they're doing a good thing because the more they sin, the more good God looks. By contrast, just like, the, the, just like a, a diamond looks better when there's black velvet behind it, so God looks better. God looks awesome in his grace when he saves sinners, and so my sin actually makes God look good. And if my sin makes God look good, then why would he punish me, Paul? Why would he do that? That, that seems sinful of God. If my unfaithfulness makes no difference to God's faithfulness, if he will keep his promise regardless of sin, why be faithful at all? In fact, he'll get more glory if I sin. So I might as well sin. Uh-oh. Paul seems to be stuck now. I mean, that's his argument, right? You're going to prevail when you're judged. Verse 4, everyone's going to look at you and go, you are amazing when you judge sin. Uh-oh, do the ends justify the means? How's Paul going to untie this knot? Remember, like I said, this is thinking cat passage. But it's important because a lot of people's objections, maybe your own objections, maybe the inner lawyer inside of you, those objections are not simple surface objections. For a lot of us, those objections are second, third, fourth level. They're complex, and how do we figure this out? And so here's, here's a text that's going, hey, we got to really think about this. Because this seems to be, a, this seems to be a, a game changer. This seems to be a contradiction at the very heart of the gospel. So Paul says, Paul, Paul responds to this in four ways. And we're just going to look at each one of his responses. Look at chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. His first response is that parentheses, I speak in a human way. What he's saying here is that this is not godly wisdom. This isn't godly reasoning. This is human. It's fallen. It's sin-justifying. It's rationalizing. He's saying, please, uh, I apologize for this nonsense, but this is what they'll say. This is what he's saying when he says, I speak in a human way. So first response, this is nonsense. Second response, look at verse 6. He says, by no means. He responds is, hey, that, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? Again, you, you asinine, you crazy, this, this is impossible, God would never do this. But think about the response. Every sinner can argue that sin served a good purpose. Regardless of the good outcome, though, Paul is saying, sin is sin and God will punish it because he's righteous. He says, never in a million years could God be unrighteous. And then he says, by, with this, just with this statement, what he's saying is, if God could not judge Jewish sin because it should make him happy, then guess what? He can't judge non-Jewish sin. He can't judge the world's sin either. And no, no Jew would ever agree to that, by the way. And here's why. Jewish rabbis taught in the first century that the only reason God made non-Jews, like us, people who aren't Jewish, is so that hell would have something to burn. That's why he made non-Jews. That's why, that, that is why they exist. And so the idea that if God cannot punish sin because it makes God look good, they would say, Paul's response is, well, then God can't judge Gentile sin either. 
And not only have you just made God not able to judge sin anywhere, but you've actually just destroyed your religion. Why? Because non-Jews get the same blessings that Jews get, namely salvation. They get everything that you get. So there really is no benefit at all to being Jewish. Because every Gentile gets exactly what every Jew gets if God cannot judge sin because it makes them look good. It's not good when your argument actually destroys your entire religion. That's usually a bad thing. So Paul's argument, it just, though short right there, verse 6, how could God judge the world, is very effective. Because it says God will judge sinful Jews the same way he judges sinful Gentiles by the standard of righteousness. And when he does that, we'll bring him glory. Paul's third response, look at verse 7. Verses 7 and 8 is his third response. And when I understood what Paul was doing in this verse, I actually laughed out loud. And I was, I was just stunned. Stunned amazement when I read this. Verse 7, but if through my lie, if Paul saying, if, if my lies, if, if through my lies, God's truth abounds to his glory. If my lies about God in the gospel, if the things that I'm saying that you think are lies, if my lies abound to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? You see what he's saying here? Here's his argument. Mr. Jewish debater, if your argument is right, that God should not judge sin because it brings him glory, then why are you arguing with me? Why are you calling me a sinner? You should be applauding me. You should be standing next to me going, this guy is right. Why? Because my lies about Jesus make Jesus look good. So by your argument, you should become a Christian because you'd be sinning against your Judaism and sin brings God glory, so you should not be faithful. You should sin by becoming a Christian and give God more glory. He's using his argument against him. It's just brilliant what he does. And says everything you're saying actually destroys everything you're saying. It's like it's true that there is no truth. There's no such thing as truth. Really, is that true? Same idea. Paul's fourth and final response. Look at verse 8. People are saying that, that we're teaching, why not do evil that good may come? And those people are slanderously charging us with that. And their condemnation is just. And Paul does, he just dismisses these charges against him and the gospel with basically anyone who says we teach this is slandering us. It's not true. And anyone who teaches this is condemned by God, and they should be, and they deserve it. Now, we would want him to say more, and he actually does say more to this in chapter 6. Chapter 6, that whole chapter almost, is basically a response to that argument against Christianity. But at this point, Paul has decimated this Jewish heckler, leaving him in this very difficult position of needing to become a Christian because by doing so, he'd be sinning, and his sin would glorify God more than if he remained a Jew. Whoops. That's not good. So what Paul dealt with here has, has not gone away. This objection remains in the heart of most Christians, and this objection remains in the sinful tendencies of, of Christians. So be careful that, point number three, you don't get in the habit of condoning your sin with God's grace. Don't condone your sin with God's grace. From the beginning, Jesus' followers taught that salvation was by faith alone, that, that obedience, good, work, good works, do not contribute even in the smallest degree to a person's salvation. For then you'd be trusting in yourself and you wouldn't be trusting Jesus to save you. And at the same time, they also taught that faith that saves is never alone. 
but it is always accompanied by good works. That good works are a byproduct of the salvation someone already has. So the most helpful thing I've ever seen on this is this simple equation. On the board, repentance plus faith equals salvation plus works. And if you're going to be saved, there are two things that need to happen. You need to repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and you need to trust in Christ. You need faith. That when that happens in a person's life, the result is salvation and the result is good works. Where that works shows up on the equation is very critical, though, because the other side of this equation would be something like this. Repentance plus faith plus works equals salvation. That's what the Jew would say. They would say, I'm, I, I, I turned from my sin, I'm, I'm following God, and I'm doing these good works, and, and because of that, I'm saved. That's not what Paul is saying. That's heresy. That's bad. And it's also not this. Repentance plus faith equals salvation. And maybe or maybe not, there will be good works. Good works are optional. Fruit tree is a great fruit tree, whether or not it produces any fruit. You, Christian, whether or not there's any good works in your life. Both of these are bad ideas. And what they're saying is that, Paul, you're on the bottom one when we're on the second one, and Paul's going, no, I'm on the top one. The good works are a necessary consequence of salvation. They are not necessary for salvation. Very critical to understand where that W shows up on that equation. I had another student, a friend of the first one, actually, who would throw this at me. I remember once, he goes, Mr. Benzinger, if God always forgives sin, then sin is no big deal. It's no big deal at all. I can sin and God will forgive me. He even drew me a picture. I have my students draw pictures to kind of, some people learn visually like that, and so I have them draw pictures to kind of solidify an idea. And so he drew me a picture once of him partying it up, dancing around, beer in his hand, and God in heaven looking down on him with a huge smile and saying, this is great, this is awesome. But he's not alone. This is a huge temptation when everything in us wants to sin. God will forgive. It's a strong temptation when we kind of want to obey, but we don't. God will forgive. It's a strong temptation after we sin. Keeps us from taking sin more seriously. This, this lie makes us lazy. It makes us apathetic. It justifies sin. It keeps us from growing. It keeps us stuck in the same sins forever. It helps us condone the sins of others. Well, God forgives, and so who am I to say? And for some people here, this lie has even tricked you into thinking you're a Christian when you aren't, just as Luke taught us last week. So grace never allows us to sin. It never condones it. never says disobedience is okay. It does just the opposite, in fact. Look at this verse from Titus, chapter 2. Paul, in another book, he, he writes, the grace of God has appeared. Grace has shown up, and it's done two things. It's brought salvation to everybody. It, it gives everybody the chance to be saved, and it does something else, too. Notice what it does. It trains us. It teaches us to do two things. Grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I'm sorry, to, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace teaches us to push sin away, not bring it closer. And grace also teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace never condones sin, 
It gives us the power that we need to say no to sin and yes to Christ. So after all that, long argument, detailed argument, deep argument, what's the point? What's the point of all this? The point is this. There is no valid excuse for unbelief. No, no, no argument, no justification, no rationalization stands. God is upheld as righteous and glorious and wonderful and that he is our judge. He, that we are never God's judge. We don't have any like zinger, any arguments like, I got you, God. But he's our judge. Paul's going to deal with more objections. But notice that after he says all this, notice verse 9. He, the, the argument that he started in chapter 1, verse 18, he concludes, verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Do we have any kind of like secret, you know, special relationship with God? No, not at all. Why? Because we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, every single person is under sin. So the overconfident, unrepentant Jew, the rebellious, unrepentant Gentile are in the same boat. They're both condemned both with no hope before a holy God, both in desperate need of his righteousness, his perfection, or they'll be lost forever. Now, I told you at the beginning, my sister and I fought all the time, my sister Emily, and um, eventually we grew up, eventually we, we stopped fighting, eventually there's peace between us. I love my sister. But for some of you right now, the interaction that we've looked at right here has kind of revealed that maybe there's conflict between you and Jesus. Maybe you didn't even know it, and this passage brought it out. You've had these objections, or you've had others that have caused you to distance yourself. Maybe you've thought you've had valid excuses for unbelief, that you're going to give God a piece of your mind, that, that you had them all figured out. You, you really don't have that. This passage shows that. Maybe you've confused yourself with having God's privileges versus being saved, being a good person, going to church, knowing the Bible. I remember a friend of mine telling me, that her mother-in-law rebuked her for giving her the gospel, for saying, you need to be saved, you need to trust in Jesus. And the reason she said this was because mother-in-law goes, honey, my grandma was a missionary. And uh, I, because my grandma was a missionary, I have this special in with Jesus, so I don't need that gospel stuff. We have all kinds of reasons for keeping Jesus at arm's distance. And all I'm saying is this passage goes, you have no excuse. Maybe your excuse has been canceling out God's justice with his love, making an idol based on your own desires rather than submitting to the only God that is. Maybe you've made it a habit of condoning your sin with God's grace, justifying disobedience, fooling yourself into thinking that God doesn't care or that he doesn't see. All of this shows varying degrees of conflict that you might be in with God right now. So before Luke comes up to talk about communion, Hear these words from Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus, it says in 2.14, is our peace. He removes the conflict. He removes the, the barrier between you and God and he brings peace so that you can be right with God through faith in Christ, which is Paul's desire for the Jew and my desire for you. Let's pray.